I mean, <clears throat> there I am. I found myself. Um, <laughs> Deuteronomy, as well as um, we'll be looking over in the book of Jeremiah, some as well this morning. Uh, just some reminders, uh, our Advent devotionals, we're posting those daily. You can find them uh, on our website. You can find a link there. We also are posting them on Facebook and Instagram, hopefully to make it easy on you so you can go through. But there's a Advent page you, you can go to if you just want to bookmark it and see the daily devotionals that we're, we're posting from now through December 25th. Uh, also, just to remind you that um, coming up in the new year, we're going to enter into a time of prayer and fasting, and uh, we're putting up some resources on, to help, particularly if you've never gone through fasting before. Uh, and, and don't worry if you, we're not asking you to fast for seven days. Um, you, you can, if you want to fast for seven days, that's, that'd be great. Um, but the point being is that uh, taking time to be intentional in fasting, and we're going to talk more that, about that as the days come, but we're putting resources there if you want to fast from food to, to give you some helpful resources, things like checking with your physicians to make sure that that would be appropriate for you and some other guidelines. But there's others that we'll be talking about how we can fast in other areas of our life from things like social media and the internet and um, and. Uh, you may be giving up uh, chocolates and such. We intentionally did it after the new year. We weren't going to ask you to give up, you know, turkey for Christmas. But um, we will be coming together just to pray and work through as we seek God's will and to carry it out and carrying out the gospel as a body through 2024. We just want to do that together and begin the new year together that as well. Um, also, just to remind this week, is we didn't put it up on our announcements, but just to remind you, uh, the school has actually put it on a play this Thursday at 7 o'clock here. They're, they literally transform the stage and uh, make it into uh, a, a high school drama presentation. It's called Superheroes. Um, it's not Christmas theme. It's a comedy, so you can come and enjoy that at 7 o'clock on Thursday if you'd like to as well. It's a great time. We, they put it on each year, and we just enjoy fellowshipping with, with them as well. Let me uh, pray again for us, specifically for me, as we look here in Ephesians chapter 6. Father, I, um, I pray again in, in an agreement with, uh, with Brother Kyle. God, would you work in such a way that the Spirit would work in such a way, not only in my words, but in us as a body, that this morning, what we would hear, what we would know, what would we remember would be the Word of God. God, help us, because I, I know this morning we, we enter into dealing with a topic that is uh, both sensitive in nature and hard in nature, not only intellectually, but, Father, emotionally and spiritually upon us. So, Father, I pray as we, we walk through this passage together and begin that walk through this issue of slavery and what it has meant over time, God, help us that we would honor the Word of God for what it truly says. And Father, that uh, we would know what it means to walk rightly and righteously before you as our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this passage, I'll tell you, as I, I saw it coming as we've been going through Ephesians, it, it's one of those particularly difficult passages um, for us as a body, for the church as a whole, for us as a nation. And uh, with our own historical realities of what slavery was like, particularly building up through the 19th century up into the, the 1800s. I mean, we fought 
a war over this as a nation. And um, slavery carries with it some very, not just intellectually challenging issues, but as I was praying, emotionally challenging, very loaded things that come with it. And as I saw this passage, I wanted to lay foundations about the biblical nature of slavery. And you'll see if you're looking there in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, there's, there's actually two commands. One is a command given to bond servants, or for some of your translations, it may say slaves, and that is the word doulos in the Greek, slaves, that they are to obey their earthly masters, rendering service as to the Lord and not to man. But then the masters, and the actual word there in the Greek is kurios, it is the word Lord, as when we confess Jesus is Lord, it's the same word, that they are to do the same, that is to do good to bondservants as to the Lord, not to man. Now, the challenge there is if we just read this passage without the greater biblical context and understanding, it would almost seem to approve of and advocate slavery. Right? If I just read this passage, I could walk out of here and say, look, if you're a slave, you should obey your earthly master, and if you're a master, you should do good to your slaves. But that implies this is an acceptable state within mankind. And that's actually what I want to start dealing with today. The, the real issue today and the goal is that I want to set foundations for the passage not to get through the exposition, specifically Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 today. We will do that in the weeks to come. But today I, I want to lay some very specific foundations. And first I want to establish an overarching biblical argument. I'm going to argue biblically across Scripture of what it means or what is slavery and how the, the Bible deals with it. And in doing so, I'm going to refer to three biblical principles that come into play. Secondly, from there, I want to move on to begin considering what slavery in the Old Testament was like, how the Old Testament established the biblical pattern of how God dealt with slavery. Let me say it again. We're going to move from the overarching biblical argument to specifically then look how the Old Testament, specifically the Mosaic Law, begins to deal with slavery biblically. And it begins to show us how God deals with slavery. Now, we're going to find that word slavery, and I'm going to work through this, isn't going to be such a simple term to define. And you'll understand a little more, I think, as we walk through this. But I want to start by saying this. The overarching biblical argument is this. Slavery is not part of the created design. That is the basic, most fundamental argument that you have to understand. Slavery is not part of the created design. Now, as we've been walking through this, this household code section of Ephesians 5 and 6, you'll notice it spoke to husbands and wives, and it spoke to children and parents, which, if you look, are part of the created design. The institution of marriage, the institution of family, is we see Paul argues, he actually makes the argument straight out of Genesis 2, that they are part of God's intended created design from the beginning. But now we transition to this part in Ephesians 6, 5, 
where it addresses slaves and masters or bond servants and masters or lords. And you begin to see, and this is something we have to understand, it is different in relational nature from the other two relationships that have been defined. And fundamentally it's different because slavery is not part of the created design. Paul makes no such argument here in Ephesians. And as you're going to see, I want to advance this argument from a greater biblical context as well. When we read the Bible holistically and we consider what it is teaching and arguing, what we see is that the practice of slavery is actually an outworking and an act of sin, not part of the created design. Let me say that again. Slavery is an outworking or a result of sin, not part of the created design. We see this in other parts of the Bible as well. For example, I'm just giving an example, we, we're not going to go through this this morning, but polygamy. We see polygamy practice in the Old Testament and even having to be dealt with in the New Testament ways. But again, it's an outworking of the fallenness of man, of our sin, not part of the created design. I could make the same argument. We saw divorce. Divorce is not what God uh, desires. It's not what he was intending to happen with marriage, but what is it? It's an outworking of the fallenness of man, the outworking of sin. So you have to deal with the reality that occurs. Look, if nothing else, one of the things that this season should remind us is our God deals with the reality of sin. He very specifically did that at the highest and greatest level by sending his son to become flesh and dwell among us. But one of the things we're going to see with slavery is he deals with that as well. So let me say it again. The overarching principle is that slavery is not part of the created design. Now let me give you three summarizing biblical principles why I would argue this. The first one is right from the beginning. You hear this verse a lot. This is one of the verses that I refer to constantly, and that is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it reads, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then 27 is a summary statement of God's created intent. So God created man in his own image. Unless we mistake that man was just meant for males, it wasn't. It was generically intended for humankind. He says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It's a holistic statement that ultimately he's going to build out in Genesis 2 to say man and woman, which represented the creation of mankind, are all created in God's image. And then he gives them what's known as the cultural mandate, Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it called the cultural mandate because it's about carrying out the purposes of God to create a culture that honors and glorifies God. That's what the sub subduing of creation is about. And so what we can draw from this is that all humans are created in the image of God and called to fulfill his purposes. Notice the word all. It's not that there's a class of humans that has the responsibility to do it, and there's some subclass that then is not supposed to do it. All of us are created in the image of God, and all of us are called to fulfill His purpose. There is none not created in the image of God. Look, I realize as a nation, 
We created laws like a three-fifth rule where that we were trying to somehow classify, and very specifically, and there are many in here that sit in our own body that come from this lineage, and they said those of African descent, specifically who came from uh, those that have brown, black skin color, they would say you are only three-fifths of a human being. Let's be very specific. That was legislated sin. There's no other way to describe it. That's what it is. You know what you do with legislative sin? You repent of it. And, that, and that's what we had to do as a nation. And, and, and honestly, if you look even the history of our own denomination, you know why it was founded? Because there was an argument over slavery. You know what our denomination had to do and has done? They had to repent of it and say, that was sin. And it is. And if there's any among us that would dare say somehow one of our brothers and sisters in Christ or anyone else, even if they're not in Christ, is somehow less than a human being because of skin color, because of race, because of ethnic background, because of mental capacity, because of age. You can name it any way you want to. Scripture is very clear, and it's a foundational principle that is at play, that addresses slavery specifically, but it's that we are all created in the image of God, and we are all called to fulfill His purpose. And if you lose that in the argument of Scripture and go to a passage like Ephesians 6, 5-9, through 9, and say, see, slavery's okay, you don't know how to read the Bible. And this is so foundationally important to us as the body of Christ, to be in fellowship and unity with one another, if we miss this, we've effectively ripped out one of the foundational elements of our fellowship with one another. The second principle that we need to understand is this, that humanity, that the humanity of all is the basis of just treatment of all. Let me say that again. The humanity of all, because everyone's fully human, there's not some lesser humanness the humanity of all is the basis of just treatment of all. This is the argument out of the book of Job. Job, you, you remember Job, he's struggling with his friends, like, why in the world does this calamity come upon me? Of course, we're reading the story of Job, but we know why. God decided, I'm going to use Job to show my glory. And he goes through this tremendous suffering. What we would look and say, how is that just? And, I mean, he's losing family members. He's losing fortune. He loses his health. It is all gone. And, and Job, in Job 31, says, I am going to defend myself against his friends. Because his friends, he's got some real helpful friends. And one of them says, Job, you know the real reason probably all this is happening? Because you're sinning. <laughs> Job's like, oh, I don't think so. And Job, read Job 31. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Job basically says, no, I'm not. And he defends his integrity to say, I have acted in integrity and I have treated people justly. And what's interesting is in the middle of that argument is verses 13 through 15. In Job 31, 13 through 15, Job is arguing. He is defending himself against the accusation that God has done this because he's done something sinful. And he responds back and says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, that is, those who are under, under his service. Now, now notice the word servant is used instead of slave because it's trying to capture, and we'll see, these were those that had come under Job's uh, lordship, as it were, under his direction. 
because of their own choosing. There's, there's reasons behind this. There's other ways you can do that. But they come in, he says, if I've rejected their cause when they brought up a complaint against me, you notice that if they accuse me of something and I just ignored them, he says, what then shall I do when God rises up? What am I going to do when God comes and accuses me of being unjust? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? And the answer that he gives is a rhetorical question. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? That is, those people that raise accusations. What's the answer to that question? Yeah, he made both of us. And then what does Job say? And did he did not one fashion us in the womb? You see, what Job is arguing through rhetorical questions here is I know I have to treat them justly. Why? God created us both. Just because I happen to be in a position of power does not give me a place of greater worth that I can therefore treat them unjustly. I cannot stand before God and say, I ignored their just complaint and said, whatever, I don't care. You're somehow lesser than I am. Job is defending his integrity and saying, even the most vulnerable of those, these who fall under my leadership, I will not ignore their plight and their complaint. So the second principle of play here is that the humanity of all of us is the basis of just treatment of all. You see, if we're all human, we must all be treated justly. That's the basic argument that Job is advancing. Why? Is it because they're somehow special? He literally says no, because God fashioned us both where? In the womb. We all started from the same playing field. We started in the same place. God created us. The third principle is this. Slavery, the, the third principle supporting that slavery is not part of the critical design. Excuse me, i got to get the words out. Gotta, the brain's going faster than the mouth can go. Slavery is not part of the creative design is this. Principle number three. Those who engage in enslaving other people are specifically categorized as sinners. That's, right, that's exactly right. They are specifically categorized as sinners. Scripture is very clear on this. I'm going to read you from the New Testament, then I'm going to point you back to the Old Testament where this comes from. In 1 Timothy 1, through, uh, 1 Timothy 1 8 through 11, Paul writing to Timothy writes this, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Isn't that interesting? Okay, all, you know what a good legalist does? Bends the law for their own needs to make themselves righteous, right? Okay, another sermon for another day, but don't do that. That's what, that's what that verse tells you. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for who? The lawless and disobedient. The law is laid down for who? For the ungodly and sinners. For who? For the unholy and profane. Now listen to these words, and you're going to hear them again in a second. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and don't miss the word next, enslavers. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It is anti-gospel to enslave people. That's what Paul just said there. But notice what category he puts enslavers into. 
And this is the word that's used to describe those who go and kidnap and enslave others. Which, by the way, is part of exactly what happened in what's called chattel slavery, as in property slavery. That's, if you ever hear that word, treating people like they're property, not like they're human. And let me caution us. We still do this today in other ways, when we dehumanize people and therefore we devalue them. So don't be so quick to condemn when in our own hearts at times we will dehumanize people so we can justify our dehumanizing behavior towards them. And God says, if you're going to enslave people, that is go and kidnap them and sell them into slavery, you are what? what I mean, look at the words. You are lawless and disobedient and ungodly sinners you're unholy and profane i mean the bible's clear on this and by the way you know what paul's doing he's repeating the law the mosaic law notice how he says the law is good for those who what that are sinners these you though they need this because if they don't restrain the sin what's going to happen it's going, they're going to go sinning. Like The sin's got to be restrained. And one of the ways the law is used is to restrain sin. Because here's the thing about how sin works. Most people will justify sin as righteousness in some way, shape, or form. So God makes it clear at points, these are unrighteous things. Because we can go and we can justify them as righteous. Because that's part of how we sear our own conscience. We harden our own hearts. You know what? I can justify my unrighteous actions because I'll find a way to turn them into righteousness. Right? We do it all the time. So Paul says, clearly the law is laid down. In Exodus 21, which I won't deal with this morning, I I was looking at it, you'll be happy because you want to eat lunch today. I had to cut out some passages this morning. I think I'm going to have to come back to you next week to deal with some even harder things. But in Exodus 21, listen to the words. And you're going to hear them echoed of what you just heard read out of 1 Timothy. Exodus 21, 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Mother striker, father, father hitters, right? Yeah. Next verse, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him. Okay, not just the, not just the kidnappers and the sellers. The buyers too. Do you understand that? shall be put to death. How seriously do you think the law took enslaving people? Death penalty. It was deadly serious about the depth of the sin. See, what what we need to realize is that there is no biblical argument, by which I mean if you read the Bible and represent it for what it's saying holistically, which is exactly what we would want to do for anything we read. We see that based on the fact that we're created in God's image, and because of that, we all must be treated justly, and because it explicitly condemns the enslavement of people to the point of its seriousness, that in the Old Covenant, it would say you will put them to death, those who enslave, and take those into slavery. The Bible does not it does not in any way, shape, or form see slavery as part of the created design. It condemns it. You have to start with that basis as we get into Ephesians 6. If you don't, you can come in all the wrong angles and interpret it in all the wrong ways. 
Now, the second part I said is not only did I want to make this basic, basically foundational argument biblically, I also want us to begin looking at how the Old Testament deals with slavery more specifically. Now, what we want to do here is to see that the reason for it is this, that it shows to us that the heart of God and his intended way in which slavery is to be dealt with. Okay, let me say it again. What we're looking at the Old Testament for is we can see the, the heart of the way God wants slavery dealt with, right? Now, we're going to see that as he builds, because it's really important to what Paul is trying to say in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. If you miss the heart of God and what's going on, you can come up with these kind of legalistic ways we deal with each other in relationships, but you have to see what the Bible is showing to be the very heart of God towards those who might have to enter into slavery. And I, I think that, that statement I just made, might have to enter into, will make a little more sense here as we look at this. I can actually state my argument out of the Old Testament in two ways, negatively and positively. That is what I'm about to argue out of the Old Testament. I'm going to state it first negatively to you, with a not statement, and then I'm going to state it positively to you. Okay? The negative way to put this, the Old Testament does not advocate for slavery. Notice the word advocate. Slavery is in the Old Testament. If you want to know how much, the word for slave, <clears throat> excuse me, occurs 803 times. We will be reviewing all these passages together. <laughs> no, we will not. <laughs> hey, nobody got time for that, right? <laughs> 803 times, and it gets interpreted in various ways. Slave, or it gets combined with a male or female form, and you'll see man-slave, or, or female-slave, or you'll see it as a maid-servant sometimes. You notice the word servant instead of slave. Uh, Bond-servant, it gets interpreted different ways, because there are nuances to it, and what, what's what the interpreters are trying to capture is it can be reflecting in kind of different relational natures that might be going on and the reasons why people ended up there. And we're going to begin seeing that this morning. But what I want us to remember is that word advocate. It is not advocating for slavery. It's dealing with its reality. The Old Testament does not advocate for slavery. It was a practice in other ancient Near Eastern contexts. Uh, you ever heard of the comb of Hammurabi? You ever heard of that? Yeah. It, that's probably one of the things that's compared to this much. The Old Testament is not advocating for those codes. It's dealing with the reality of what was going on in ancient Israel and then other Near Eastern nations around it. It's not advocating for the way slavery was practiced in the first century Greco-Roman world. We're going to see, as I talk into the New Testament, there are different nuances that Greco-Roman slavery brings into this and different points of emphasis that it has. It also is not advocating in any way, shape, or form for slavery as it was practiced particularly in European and American contexts up through into the 19th century. And then we still deal with the outworking of that in many ways even in our society today. The reality is what we need to see, and I need you to remember, it is not advocating for slavery. Rather, what you see going on is that it is, it is a descriptive, not a prescriptive thing. What's going on in the Old Testament is we are seeing the description of a fallen world 
not a prescription of what the world should be like. So when you read these passages, we are dealing with slavery as a reality. What do you do about it? And so the Old Testament starts dealing with that, and the New Testament is going to advance more on that. And here's what the basic term is. It's called progressive revelation. God progresses over time, and we get clear revelation of who God is in the heart of God. We see this in a whole different context. This is the season of the coming of the Savior of the world. Well, if you read the Old Testament, and as we're going to see in our Christmas Eve service, there are prophecies that are leading us towards that coming. But all of a sudden, he comes on the scene, and we get way more clarity of who that Messiah is. And sometimes the expectations get off, right? They think, oh, he's going to be a, conquering or a conqueror of nations in his first coming. We find out, no, he's not. In his first coming, he's a conqueror of human hearts. And see, we're going to see slavery is the same way. There's a progressiveness to what's going on with slavery through the Bible. And one of the great things of the gospel is that if we follow the gospel, slavery disappears. Now, what we see, if I state this positively, is slavery laws. And you'll notice I put the word slavery in quotes. That was intentional. Because it's not slavery like is in, we would think, pure human ownership. It has more to do with what we might call servitude laws, we, to take the, the ownership aspect out of it a little bit. And we'll, we'll see that. Slavery laws under the Mosaic law were intended to protect, okay? They were a protective exercise. That is not to take advantage of somebody. They were to protect the servant from poverty and abuse. That was their intended, the intent of the laws. They knew those who were in some form of slavery or servitude were exposed to abuse. They were put into a vulnerable position economically, physically, emotionally, and so it takes it very seriously. And the Mosaic Law is actually trying to address that, that, that vulnerability and to protect them. Slavery under the Mosaic Law is generally to be a temporary state of contracted, indentured servitude. We may be more familiar with this from the American colonies. You may remember there's a lot of people that came over the American colonies that had to enter into indentured servitude contracts. Bluntly, they couldn't afford the, the boat ride. So how do I get over? Well, I'm going to agree to be under your service, the person you pay for, it, for a certain amount of time. Now, honestly, that can be taken advantage of. And the Mosaic law actually recognizes that. And we're going to see that. Okay? So I'm going to look at two passages a day, and I'm going to hit some highlights. And then I'm looking, and we're going to have to come back and build some more on some what I would call very challenging, other people call them trouble passages, they're challenging, but I think we can deal with them honestly and see that we honor the biblical context and that it, it doesn't advocate slavery. If you have your Bibles in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 18, long passage, but I want to hit some highlights here to begin seeing my argument that slavery in the Old Testament is about protecting, not taking advantage of somebody. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 18 says, At the end of seven years, you shall grant release. And this is the manner of the release. 
Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has proclaimed. Anybody want all their debt relieved after seven years? Just raise your hand. I like, yeah? Yeah. Especially the current interest rates, I'd like to, you know, please, you know? Yeah. Dion and I just bought a house. Man, I hope someone follows this rule, because after seven years, it'd be great, right? But this is where we get our seven-year laws, by the way. You know your credit history, if you declare bankruptcy, when does it go off your credit history? After seven years. It follows biblical patterns. That's why this started getting developed. So you release them, and he shall not exact his neighbor's brother there in verse 2, in verse 3, of a foreigner you may exact it, which we're going to have to come back to next week. So I'm going to talk about the foreign relationship and why this is talked about in a different way. But one of the things to note here is notice how you're supposed to treat a fellow follower of God. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. And notice the goal, but there will be no poor among you. And there's a goal. And the reason why I say that's a goal, if you look down in verse 15, look at Deuteronomy 15, 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. You see, you see the contrast? If you could follow, and look at verse 4 again, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance possessed. Oh, hold a minute. There's an if statement. Verse 5. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, which you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. And then you get to verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. You think God knew that the Israelites were not going to be able to follow him wholeheartedly as he had asked them to do? Of course he did. So he, he makes plans for it. He understands this. this. God wasn't surprised by them doing this. He sovereignly plans for it. And he says in verse 7, there in Deuteronomy 15, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, notice the trigger. They became poor. If any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Okay, there's a principle there, by the way, for those of you that are, are, are giving and somebody asks for support, you give sufficient to meet the need, right? Not to buy their next trip on their cruise, okay? Although I would say I stand in need of a cruise, so anyone who wants to get, I'm sorry. Not there. Anyway, it's called reading into scripture, by the way, very bad, but you learn by example. Whatever it may be, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, notice what it's saying. The seventh year in the year of release is near. Oh, I'm not going to lend to this person. I'm going to have to, it's year number five. I'm not going to get maximum return on my lending, so I'm going to go, you know what, I'm going to hold back. And, and it actually says, don't do it. If they're in need, give to sufficient the need to meet the need. And then year seven comes. By the way, you notice what it's expecting? It's actually expecting a return on that lending investment. That, that there's actually be something that comes back. That they, they're working for you. And that's what the idea here is. And that's why I talk about indentured servitude. That's our kind of closest thing we can think about. That you're, you're working, but when your year seven comes, they're free. You release them. They're free of their debt. They're free of their obligation. They no longer have to be under your, your leadership, your guidance. They are free men, as, as the Old Testament calls them, to go and do what they want. It says, and you give um, 
pick it up in verse 10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. That is, you better be prepared to do this, because this is going to be something constant. Therefore I command you, you shall open your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. It actually establishes this practice to say there's going to come a time, and what would happen? This is how, this is how it happened. Famine comes. They can't produce crops. But God has been gracious to you, and for, you, have, you have provision for them. There's other Old Testament laws. You, you remember in the book of Ruth? Ruth and Naomi come back in the land, right? Ruth the Moabitess, right? You remember the, Moab, the Moabites? They, God did not like the Moabites. But she comes in the land with her mother Naomi, and we catch them in Boaz's field doing what? They're gleaning because by law, you had to leave the corners of the fields for the poor so they could have food to eat. See, the Old Testament is accounting for this from the beginning. And here what you see is the reason you would enter into what we would, might term slavery. But it's better to be understood the word to take that edge off. Because we, I think a lot of times in our mind, we think slavery like what we saw in our American history, which is just sinful. I mean, there's just no other word. That's just sin. Of kidnapping and selling people and, and splitting family. That's not what's going on. Here it's saying a brother is in need. Find a way to supply for that need. To the need, right? Because that's never going to cease. Christ said it, you always have the poor with you. And then he goes on, and this is in verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you. Now I want to be careful here. This is where it's hard contextually. Selling makes it sound like I had the person and I sold them to another person. That's not what's going on. Because that's how we did it in our historical, in the history of our nation. That's not what's going on. By the way, other nations did this as well. It's not just us. An interesting historical observation, um, Dr. Soul, the last name is spelled S-O-W-E-L-L, he's out of, out of California, um, has done some of, the most, uh, some of the best work on the history of slavery in the U.S., but one of the things he points out, the major slavery that occurred, when you look at it, slavery within Africa itself, so they're doing this within the continent. This is, has nothing to do with us, but they're actually kidnapping, selling each other. What they also call the Moor slavery, which is more what we would know as the ancient Middle East, and then what's known as European and American slavery. Of those three major categories, Dr. Soul points this out. There is one and only one that actually came to terms with and overturned what it was doing based on its religious conviction, and it's the American-European slavery, because when we came to deal with guys like William Wilberforce and others, and came to the reality, guys like John Newton, who were on slave ships and saw the, the devastation and destruction what it did, our Christian conscience said, that is not how you treat other people. And you, you, we need to realize that what it's saying here is when it says sold, what it is, is I'm choosing to sell myself to you for a period of time, indentured servitude, because I'm in desperate need. I have no food. I'm not going to be provided for my family, so I will serve you for a time. But it's a temporary contract. He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. You hear the word again? It's not a permanent estate. And it, what's interesting is, is when it ends, it's not over. Verse 13, and when he, you let him go free from you, time's up. You don't just go, I wash my hands of you, you're gone. He actually, it actually says, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock. Here, take some animals with you, you're going to need them. 
out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. Here's some food. Here's drink. Here's flock. I'm not setting you up for failure. I am actually trying to let you leave under, under serving me so that you can go and flourish without me. You see, the, the Old Testament is looking to protect these. And, and we could go on. We'll get in Exodus 21. And it talks about that there is punishment to be had for abusive masters, as we might call them, those who were in that position. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just mention real quickly, if you look at verse 16, and this is why I said it was generally temporary. Let me comment very quickly on 16 and following for sake of time. You'll notice there, there was a way that you could say, you know what, I don't want to depart from you. The, the, the seventh year is here, but I want to stay. I want to serve in your house. I want to stay in your household. You could actually do that. You could say, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. And there's a ceremony. And you may have the word all there, A-W-L, and, and all. That's a, what I call an ice pick. You know, my ice machine at home, does, and i got to break up the ice because it's all frozen together. That's what it is. And what they would do is you would go through a ceremony, and you would literally have your ear pierced. And you would drive it through, and that became an external symbol that now I have chosen. Okay? Not the master of the house. The servant is chosen. He is so good. I, I want to be in this household. I will take this, and we will stay under his leadership for the rest of my life which did not, by the way, obligate your children for generations forward. It was you. I made the choice. Now, they're there while they're under, when you're under your guidance, yes, but once they came of age, they, they could go out and make their own decisions. That's why I say it's generally temporary, because they could choose to make it permanent, but that wasn't the master making that decision. It is the person who is in servitude making decisions. Does that make sense? Their choice, which is amazing when you think about how that's reflected in our salvation. God doesn't force us to embrace him. But he works in our hearts in a miraculous way so that when we see Christ, we are compelled to embrace him and make an eternal commitment to say, I will follow Christ. What a, what a powerful picture that God can sovereignly work in such a way that he can bring about that I'm not forced, but I willingly choose because of his miraculous intervention in my sinful heart that I can see who Christ is, that he is the good master that I want to serve forever. Let me finish with Jeremiah 34, 12 through 22. Now, we're just, I just want you to see what happened. Why? did the nation of Israel go into captivity in Babylon, specifically the southern nation of Judah? You may remember the, the ten lost tribes of Israel, we call them. They went into captivity, were decimated by Syria. It's a northern nation after a split. The southern nation of Judah is left, but they go into captivity. Listen to why. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is Jeremiah 34, 12. Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isn't that interesting? You were slaves. I brought you out. At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. Right? That's, that's what we just read. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You hear why they're, getting, they're, they're about to head into slavery? You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that was called by my name. You said the same thing. In fact, you went so far to release them, 
but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Basically, liars. And as a result, look at 16, therefore thus says the Lord, or excuse me, 17, therefore thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And he's going to send them off into captivity in Babylon because of this. Do you hear the weightiness with which the Bible takes, taking advantage of others? It, it, it takes it very seriously. And what I want us to remember, this is why I'm setting foundations as we go in this passage, what we are being taught is the Bible in general, and the Old Testament more specifically, does not advocate for slavery. Rather, the Mosaic law that is in the Old Testament, and as we will see, the gospel in the New Testament as well, seeks to protect those who are made vulnerable due to having to enter into some form of servitude. And here's what we need to remember as we continue to walk forward. The only one who is to be Lord of our life is Christ. I pray this morning when we walk out of here, you not will just be convinced in your minds, but you'll be convinced in your heart. Slavery as it had been practiced in the history of our nation is nothing but sin, and that our God desires to bring people to be truly free. Because when you know the truth, you will be free indeed. And that T is capitalized. Not just truth, but the truth, Jesus Christ himself. This is the one who should be our Lord, and him alone. Father, I thank you I pray that would you work in our, our hearts, our minds as a body to be able to say, Father, and see that we seek to serve one Lord alone, and it is Christ. And that, Father, we seek to bring relief to those who are suffering. That, Father, where we see, even in the modern day, the ills of slavery, Father, that we would see and say, that is sin and it must be addressed. God, may we see your heart, that what you desire is to protect the vulnerable, to free the enslaved. Father, to glorify yourself by them seeing, to know your son, Jesus Christ, is to be free indeed. And so, Father, we pray, make us a free people who serve but one Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.